The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Well, my name's Brian Nixon. I'll be sharing with you tonight, I think, on the very, very important topic, the Bible. How many of you have your Bible? Raise it up. Raise it up. Yeah, there it is. That's what I like to see, Bibles. Well, before we get started, I'm going to draw your attention to the screen. So turn it to me. Vasquez beaten away by Buffon. And then Ronaldo! Yeah, I don't know about you, but seeing something like that fires me up. Why? Because it's full of potential. There's activity going on. It shows the skill of the athlete, who in this case happens to be Cristiano Ronaldo, who was one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. And why I show you that is because what is true of a professional athlete who has such potential, such activity, who's alive on the field, is true with the Bible. Would you agree? The Bible is alive. The Bible is active. And it has the amazing ability to change our lives. And it comes with authority, just like Cristiano Ronaldo had authority as he scored that goal. So tonight, we're going to do two things. The first is I'm going to direct your attention to Hebrews 4.12. And we're going to look at the authority, the power, and the activity of the scripture. And then I'm going to demonstrate to you or for you, that the Bible is a reliable book. Why? Because I don't need to tell you that we live in a day and age where the Bible is under great scrutiny. You just turn on the TV. You see another pastor who's fallen. You see sex scandals. And what happens in the larger consciousness of people is they equate that with, well, your religion must be faulty. And what's the foundation of your religion. Of course, it's Jesus Christ, but it's his word. So people start to question the Bible. So more so than ever, folks, we need to be equipped to give an answer to people who may question the Bible. So that's going to be the second half of this message, is to show you that the Bible is a reliable book. And I thoroughly encourage you to jot some notes down, because you will be confronted with something like this. Why do you believe that book that was written over 2,000 years ago? Or, you know, the Bible has lots of mistakes in it. You've heard stuff like that. Hopefully I could give you some tools to help you as you share with other people. But first, turn to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather, to open up your word. We pray that you would just use it to impact our lives, to change us, Lord. That we would find that it is alive in our lives. And we just commit this time into your hands, and we pray this in Christ's name. While you're turning to Hebrews 4.12, just a little bit of context. The writer of Hebrews is, interestingly enough, in chapter 4, writing about rest. And he's using the Bible to support 
his theme on rest, R-E-S-T, rest. And at the end of his argument that rest is needed, he brings in this verse. And this verse reads, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And for just a little bit different perspective, here's the NIV. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. With this one verse, I'm going to show you four things about the Bible. Four things. Number one, that the Bible has authority. Number two, that the Bible is alive. Number three, that the Bible is active. And number four, that it can change your attitude. So let's jump in. First, the Bible has authority. Notice those first few words in the text. For the word of God. Now we've heard that used many times. But what you may not know is that that phrase has different connotations used throughout scripture. First of all, the word of God could be the direct utterance of God speaking. God speaking directly from his own voice, such as God speaking to Moses, I am that I am. So God speaking directly, that's the word of God. But secondly, it is an utterance given to a prophet. So God is speaking through someone else. And you'll often see this in scripture. Someone will say, thus saith the Lord, and then they speak on behalf of God. So one, God speaking on his own behalf. Two, God using someone else to speak for him. The third is that Jesus himself is the word, right? The Bible says Jesus is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the word of God. He's God in human flesh. The fourth way the Bible uses the word of God is the written word. The written word. These 66 books of the Bible, oftentimes it is referred to the word of God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is using it for. When he says, for the word of God, he's referring to the entirety of the Bible. Old Testament, and of course, even though the New Testament was still being written by proxy, the New Testament. So the Word of God. But inherent in this, folks, is that the Word of God comes with authority. Why? In all cases, whether it's God speaking, whether it's God speaking through a prophet, whether it's Jesus or the Bible, it comes with authority. Why? Because it's God. It's God's word. It's the creator of heaven and earth. He who made every one of us, every molecule, every nuance, everything. He is speaking. So it has authority. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. The Bible has authority. Secondly, the Bible is alive. Look at that word right there, is living. That word is zeo in Greek. And it means alive. It means that it's living. God's word is active. It lives, it breathes and acts. Figuratively speaking, it literally doesn't breathe. But just like life begets life, 
God's word begets life. Just like we need food and water to help us grow physically, we need God's word because it's alive to grow spiritually. So the Bible is alive. Third, we learn from this verse is that it is active or powerful. Look at that word powerful. It's the word energes, which we get the word energy from. And it's effectual. It's so effectual. Look how the writer of Hebrews describes it. It cuts. It divides. It's likened to a sword. It pierces. It penetrates. It divides. It cuts. In short, the Bible is transforming. It's actively transforming your life and your thoughts. In a sense, it's drawing a line of saying, this is what God says. And you need to be abiding by what God says. That's how alive and active it is. The Bible is so powerful, in fact, and we're going to be learning this pretty soon, that it has transformed Western civilization. It's transformed individual lives. That's how powerful the Bible is. It's powerful. It's active. It's alive. But then fourth, the Bible helps change our attitudes. And that word for Attitude could also be translated discerned. And discerned, it means it discriminates. The Bible helps shape our mental and spiritual life, providing us principles in God's ultimate plan. When we follow the precepts of the Bible, the teachings of the Bible, we can be sure that we're walking in accordance with God's principles and plans. Why? Go back to the first point. Because it comes with authority. It's God's word. It's God speaking to us. So it comes with authority. And therefore we can bet that it will change our attitudes. It will change our mindset. It's a powerful book. But again, many people don't believe that. I'm speaking probably to the vast majority of believers tonight. And you believe, like, wow, yeah, I believe that. It's God's word. It's powerful. It's active. It's going to help change my life. But many people don't. Many people are dismissive of it. And they just see it as some ancient text. So what we're going to do now is give you some tools, some strategies, some points to help you at least intelligently share with other people why you believe the Bible to be reliable. Why you believe it to be the word of God. You with me? Let's do this. So to do this, I'm going to cover three broad areas. Number one is evidence. Number two is exactness. And number three is experience. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. I could become so exhaustive that I would put you guys to sleep. By the way, just a little, a, a little bit of historical truth here. On February 28th, tomorrow, I think it was in 1643 or something of that nature, somewhere around there, the first American was put in prison and jailed for falling asleep in church. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. Someone was put in prison for falling asleep. That's how seriously they took the teaching of Scripture. You can't fall asleep while, you know, the Bible's being taught. But I'm going to go through these so... You don't, I'm going to go through them quickly so you hopefully won't fall asleep. So the first E, evidence. 
What kind of evidence is there? What kind of evidence outside of the Bible that collaborates, that parallels to show that the Bible is reliable? Well, the first outside evidence is archaeology. Archaeology. Archaeology shows the Bible to be reliable and consistent with history. Hundreds of archaeological finds underscore the historical and cultural reliability of the Bible. There's too many to name. I would bore you if I go through. But I literally just got this magazine this week. Just got it this week. And Dr. Craig Evans, who's a biblical scholar and a part-time archaeologist, he just names two. And I'm just going to read this verbatim. One team working in Old Jerusalem is uncovering what appears to be the palace and administrative buildings of King David and his successors. Just last year, this team found a clay seal that appears to read Isaiah the prophet. So they're finding evidence of the biblical writers. And then he says, two years earlier, only three meters away from the very spot where the Isaiah seal was found, another seal was found that read Hezekiah. And I could go on and on about archaeological discoveries. As a matter of fact, as I'm speaking, over in Jordan, our very own Dr. Stephen Collins is digging in Jordan. And Steve used the Bible to determine, to locate where he believes the ancient city of Sodom is. And he has spent 14 seasons uncovering facts that demonstrate what he believes is the city of Sodom. Archaeology is a powerful tool. It's so powerful that I came up with a goofy little thing, uh, saying. Listen to this. With every shovel comes more trouble for those who don't believe the Bible is worth a hovel. <laughs> with every shovel comes more trouble for those who don't believe the Bible is worth a hovel. It's true. Every time an archaeologist pulls, puts the shovel in the ground, it seems, they find something. So archaeology is an evidence that collaborates, that shows the Bible is reliable. Secondly, geography. Geography. The Bible, folks, discusses real people and places. These aren't invented cultures. They're not talking about some fictitious land. They are basing their writings on fact. As example, real people, pharaohs, kings, and other historical personages, the Bible discusses, and guess what? Other ancient documents discuss them. We know they're real. Again, it's not talking about fairy tales. It's talking about real places and people. Some of the places it discusses, Egypt, Israel, and cultures in the Middle East. Guess what? You could go visit them all today. They're still there. Why? Because the Bible is giving us an accurate, reliable overview of geographical people and places, but also geographical points, right? It talks about real rivers, real lakes, real mountains, real places. You could go and find the vast majority of places that the Bible is talking about. It gives us an accurate picture of geography. And that's important, folks, because other religious books don't do that. They talk about fictitious things that are floating in the sky and give you this illusionary nirvana type experience. Not the Bible. It's rooted in reality. So the Bible gives us we, good people, places, and points. 
supported by archaeology. But another evidence is science. And some of you are scratching your head going, well, that can't be correct. I mean, isn't science and Christianity at odds? Aren't they enemies? Absolutely not. The same God is the author of both, right? God wrote two books, did he not? He wrote the book of the Bible, what we're studying, and he wrote the book of nature. And they are not going to disagree with one another. Science and the Bible will collaborate. Let me just give you a few points for science. And again, I can't go into too much detail because I'll bore you. But cosmology. Do you guys know what cosmology? It's the study of the origins and development of the universe. Cosmology. Most cosmologists, 99% of cosmologists are, would teach what? That the universe had a beginning. Hmm. That's interesting. It's because that's what the Bible teaches. Of course, cosmologists call it the Big Bang. Uh, that's fine. You could call it whatever you want. The Bible calls it God's word. God spoke and it was. Science are describing what God accomplished. So cosmology. You know, and, and cosmology is a, a very large field. But there's some great, brilliant people that are Christians in, in cosmology. Dr. John Polkenhorn. He's a quantum physicist. He's also a pastor in England. Taught at Cambridge. He's retired now. But he's dealt extensively with this. Dr. Stanley Jockey, who's now with the Lord. But he, too, dealt with cosmology, looking at how science reflects God's handiwork. Cosmology is an evidence. Secondly, biology. Biology. Simple as genetics, right? One blood. So many people are fascinated by finding out your family heritage. You, you go to 23andMe or, or some of the other genetic places, Ancestry.com, and, whoa, I'm 14% Spanish, and I'm 36% German, and I'm 4% Native American, and I even have a little African and Asian in there. And we're fascinated. But what we have to realize is our genetic code shows that we're of one blood. We all go back to common ancestors. Whether we have darker melanin, or lighter melanin, or you have blue eyes or brown eyes, we are all of a same genetic code pattern. And that's interesting because that's what the Bible teaches, right? God made two human beings, and from them came the people of the earth. Also, biology shows that the earth is fine-tuned for life. It is. Look at all the other planets in our solar system. You're, you're not finding life like you have here. It's perfectly fine-tuned. Why? Because we know biblically God fine-tuned it for life. Also, look at the diversity, right? Look at the diversity of our, of our world. Not only the diversity of people, just look in this room. We have people with dark skin, fair skin. There's diverse in human beings, but when you add Animals and plants and insects and all life forms, there's a lot of diversity. Huh, that's interesting because that's what the Bible teaches. God made things according to its kind. God made a diverse and unique, fabulous world. So what science is teaching is what we see in nature, in biology. 
And I could even dig deeper into the cellular structure. Adenine, thymine, guanine, cysteine. The four bases that make up a cellular block. We could talk about the Punit square, recessive and dominant genes. I could talk all about that because I taught it in school. But I won't bore you. But let me tell you, it's a fascinating ride to show how God designed the world. So science, cosmology, biology, and then next, geology. Geology, as you guys know, is the study of rocks, plate tectonics. It's the study of things around. And I'm not going to go too much in detail, but when I lived in Southern California, I, I don't know if some of you know, I write for a news service. I just do, I've been doing it for years. It's fun. I write for a CIS news service. And I think I was down there to take a, a tour of a Bible museum. And they appointed to me, my tour guide was Dr. Stephen Austin, who's a geologist, a PhD geologist from the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm following Dr. Austin around like a little puppy dog, and he's just going through, and he's just, you know, from the tip of his tongue, just talking about what the Bible says and how geology collaborates what Scripture says. And I was just dumbfounded at how closely related of what the Bible is saying and how it shows in geology. And then finally, there's astronomy, right? The study of stars. As we look up, the Bible discusses not some fictitious world out there, but something real. Job mentions the Pleiades and Orion. It mentions the stars. It gives accurate assessment of our heavens. And then we have doc, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, who's an astronomer that has extensively shown how the Bible and astronomy line up. So folks... The Bible is reliable scientifically. The Bible is reliable geographically. The Bible is reliable archaeologically. And the Bible is reliable textually. The book of the Bible itself is reliable. How do we know this? It comes down to two things. Internal evidence, what we find in the Bible. And external evidence, what other people say about the Bible. Internally, as we saw in our Hebrews 4 passage, that the Bible claims to be the Word of God, right? The Bible is clear. It's the Word of God. But what you don't realize externally is that the Bible is the most supported piece of ancient literature, period. There is no other ancient Textual book that has as many copies, as many manuscripts that has been spent time and time again studying as the Bible. It is the most studied book on planet earth. And it's been the most studied book on planet earth for almost 2,000 years. The Bible has external, external reliability. As a matter of fact, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a British scholar, hence sir, summarized specifically the New Testament as this. The New Testament text is far better attested than any of any other work in ancient literature. It's the best supported book. So is it reliable? Yes. The evidence would show that it is a reliable book. So that's the evidence. Let's new, now move to the exactness, the second E, exactness. And again, I could go on and on about how exact the Bible is in a host of things, but I'm just going to give you two areas, the area of prophecy 
in the area of what I'll call problems that people face. Prophecy and problems. Let's look at prophecy first. Prophecy is a prediction of something before it occurs. In the Bible, there are well over 1,000 prophetic utterances. J. Barton Payne, in his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and seven, excuse me, 578 prophecies in the New Testament for a total of 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. That's a lot of prophecies, folks. That's a lot of predictions. But I believe that God put those there for a reason. Why? He wanted to demonstrate, to show us that his book is reliable. Test me on this. I'm going to state something that's going to come to pass. It's going to be true in the future. And then we could turn around and go, oh, yeah. That was God speaking. That was with authority. So let's just take one person who has the most prophecies surrounding him. Jesus. Jesus. So most scholars say Jesus fulfilled roughly 300 prophecies or will be fulfilling 300 prophecies. And now let's break it down to mathematics. One person, Jesus, fulfilling just eight of those 300 prophecies is one in 100 trillion. That's a big number. I don't even know how many zeros there are behind it, but that's a big number. Just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Now let's increase that. One person fulfilling 48 of those prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros, folks. That's a big number. Can't even fathom it. Don't even know how to pronounce it. One person fulfilling 300 prophecies, I don't even know. But we know who did or who will. And his name is Jesus. So it is the prophetic utterances that show us the internal reliability. It's giving us the exact nature of what God is speaking. The second one is problems with humanity. So prophecy, now problems. There are lots of problems with humanity. We get sick. The Bible talks about that. We get sad. The Bible talks about that. It doesn't give us a rosy picture of humanity. So let's just take one of the major problems in humanity. Murder. Murder. In 2017, in California, there were 1,830 murders. In Texas, there was 1,412. In Florida, 1,057. Excuse me. Total murders for the U.S. in 2017 was 17,284 reported murders. And you're going, so what? Well, the Bible testifies that what? All people are fallen. We're sinners. So again, the Bible doesn't do this rosy picture of things. It portrays reality as it is. There's lots of murders. There's lots of mayhem in the Bible. The Bible gives us an accurate picture of people's problems. All people fall short of the glory of God. So we have evidence. We have the exactness. And thirdly, we have the experience. And here we're going to focus on two things. People 
in history. People in history. Quick survey of major people throughout history shows us that the Bible is powerful. It alone can change someone's life. Let me give you the first person. Augustine of Hippo. We did have a picture of it. There he is. The African. Incredibly, incredibly influential in the late early church. Incredibly influential. But listen to this story. In the year 386, Augustine and his friend, Olympus, were spending time in Italy. While outdoors, Augustine heard the voice of a child singing a song, with the words of which were, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. Augustine thought at first that the song was related to some kind of children's game and could not remember ever having heard such a song. Then realizing that maybe someone was trying to get hold of him, he picked up a Bible, opened the scriptures, and the first thing he turned to was the letter of Paul to the Romans. Augustine read Romans 13 13 through 14. After reading this scripture, Augustine said his life was flooded with light. And Augustine went on to be baptized during Easter in 387. But get this, the friend he was with also was baptized. And not only that, his son, that he had an illegitimate son, because Augustine was a party boy, also got baptized. Three people from him reading that scripture. And that's not the end of the story. If anyone knows about Augustine of Hippo, he became the bishop of North Africa. He wrote some of the greatest works that they still read and study in college today. He helped the Roman Empire get through The Germans coming down and attacking and destroying it. Augustine is huge in church history. And it began with him simply reading the scripture. The Bible is powerful. But let's go up a little bit in history to Martin Luther. As many of you know, he was a monk. And he was struggling with a lot of things in his life. He wasn't too happy where he was at. But he was actually teaching college. He was teaching at the university. And then one day, he too picked up the Bible, turned to Romans 17, and he read, The righteous shall live by faith. And this is what he wrote. This is Luther himself writing this. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy of God justifies us through faith. Now listen to this. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. By reading the scriptures, Luther felt reborn. He felt like, wow, Lord, you just opened a new door. And Luther walked through that door. And what do we call that door? The Reformation. He wanted to reform the church because he saw things were going south. The church wasn't where it should be. How we need a reformation today of people excited about God's word. True? How we need another reformation. 
But it doesn't stop there. John Wesley, Anglican, strong Christian. He was already serving in ministry, working in the Church of England. But he felt his ministry was stagnant. He was just kind of there. And then on May 24th, 1738, he opened the Bible at about 5 in the morning. And he came across these words in 2 Peter 1.4. There are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, even that ye should partakers of his divine nature. And Wesley's life was transformed. He said afterwards, my heart was strangely warmed. And do you guys know about John Wesley? After this moment, he became one of the greatest evangelists, both in England and he came to, here to America. He preached thousands upon thousands of evangelistic crusades. He taught thousands upon thousands of Bible studies. Some attribute Wesley's influence to transforming England. As a matter of fact, some scholars would state that why England didn't go through a revolution like France was because of the ministry of John Wesley. That's how powerful God's word is. It changed. It transformed England. Let's do one more for the fun of it. Charles Spurgeon. Many of you guys know Charles Spurgeon. He's quoted a lot from this pulpit. In 1815, at 60 years of age, excuse me, at 16 years of age, a storm was raging outside, and the only place he could take retreat was in a church. He happened to go into a Methodist church, which, interestingly enough, the followers of John Wesley started the Methodist church. So he retreats to a Methodist church. Someone stepped up to the pulpit and read Isaiah 45, 22. And this is what Charles Spurgeon wrote years later. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Hearing one verse read transformed a 16-year-old boy to become what he's now considered the prince of expositors. He became the most influential Bible teacher in England in the Victorian era. People lined up outside of his church to get in. There wasn't a seat empty. That's how powerful. And it just began with a 16-year-old boy hearing someone read scripture. Folks, the Bible's powerful. It's active. You may have a similar story. I have a similar story. But folks, it doesn't just stop with changed lives. It doesn't just stop with Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Spurgeon. The Bible has transformed history. Bear with me here for a moment. S scholar Dr. Elward Cubberley of Stanford University observed that the biblical teachings of Jesus challenged the day in which they lived. This is what he said. Almost everything for which the Roman world had stood was challenged by Jesus in the Bible. So what was challenged? Let me just give you a few things to consider. First of all, democracy. 
democracy. Christianity influenced our modern take on democracy. You go, well, how so? The Magna Carta, which we consider the foundational document for democracy, Dr. Alan Snyder of Southeastern University in Florida says the Magna Carta had its roots, its foundation in the Bible. The drafters of the Magna Carta had the Bible with them. They understood it. They used the Bible in framing a modern understanding of democracy. Law was influenced. Modern law was influenced by the Bible. Sure, the Ten Commandments, which we have to take down now in public spaces. But the Ten Commandments and all of the Bible influenced the law. As a matter of fact, Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish scholar, wrote a book called Lay Rex. And in this book, he shows how law, the formation of Western law, found its roots in the Bible. Democracy, law. Here's one that's very important. Slavery. Slavery. Ah, isn't it beautiful that Christians stood up against the ill treatment of other human beings? Slavery. In England, abolitionists began to fight slavery as early as 1665. The Puritan, Richard Baxter, was writing against it. Later, Quakers, Benjamin Lay, as early as 1720. And then, the James Philip print shop, a print shop in England, was printing biblical tracts and tracts against slavery at the same time. Christians were doing that. You go, well, that was England. What about here in America? Same thing. Here in America, interestingly enough, the first people to write and speak against slavery were the Anabaptists. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are going, well, I don't know. Who are Anabaptists? You know them. The Amish, the Mennonites, and brethren. Amish, Mennonite, and brethren are considered Anabaptists. And they were the first to write against slavery. Later on, in the 1700s, it was picked up by the Quakers. And a fellow by the name of John Woolman, who was a Quaker pastor, would go everywhere he could. He traveled extensively, and he would always start off teaching a Bible study. And then for people that would stay after, he would speak about how slavery was wrong. Christians. Christians were doing that, folks. Christians transformed society and history. The government wasn't doing it. We had to go to war over it. You know, 200 years later. But Christians were doing that. Changing society because of the Bible. So democracy, law, slavery. Gotta love this one. Women's rights. Women's rights. People real, don't realize that Susan B. Anthony... The architect of women's rights, the grandma of women's rights, was a devout Quaker. And the first publication they put out was called the Declaration of Sentiments. Listen to this quote from the Declaration of Sentiments. It states that women has too long rested satisfied in the circumscribed limits which corrupt customs 
and listen to this, and a perverted application of the scriptures have marked out for her, and that it is time she should move in the enlarged sphere for which her great creator has assigned her. Two things. They understood that scripture was being corrupted, misinterpreted, and that they were going to show the proper interpretation. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, was foundational in women's rights. Fascinating. Fascinating. Democracy, law, slavery, women's rights. How about hospitals? You know, hospitals have had a very tricky time. We have some doctors in here tonight. I won't point them out, but there's one over here. I asked her to come in case I just fall down. She could, you know, resuscitate me or something of that nature. But for a long time, doctors didn't understand microbiology. So they would use dirty scalpels and such. And people a lot of times would die after they go through surgery because they got these infections and such. And then this devout woman by the name of Florence Nightingale said, huh, I'm going to research and she studied other people's works, and she said, you know what? We need to start cleaning up our hospitals. We need to start treating our patients better. We need to ensure we have a clean system. So again, a woman, a devout Christian, helped transform the modern hospitals. And I got a kick out of it because I was watching PBS. I love Henry Gates on PBS. You guys know who Henry Gates is? He's the guy that does Finding Your Roots. I, I just, I eat that stuff up. But I'm watching it, and the commercial, they highlight Florence Nightingale. I thought, how cool. She's still in the American consciousness. But they don't tell you that she was a devout Christian, but they do tell you that she transformed well, how we know hospitals. So Christians were part of that. Relief work. I won't go in detail about this, but you know Salvation Army, YMCA, the Red Cross, all of this founded by Christians. And then, of course, science. I could spend all day going through uh, Pascal, Leibniz, Newton, Kepler, Faraday, all these incredibly important scientists who were all devout Christians. Or today, Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project. We have Francis Collins to thank for mapping our genes. Guess what, folks? A devout Christian. Francis Collins. The guy responsible for mapping our genes. So when doctors look and they could start doing gene analysis and they could look at things, they have a Christian to thank who was leading that team, Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Rodney Stark, a professor of sociology, said this, the leading scientific figures in the 16th and 17th centuries overwhelmingly were devout Christians who believed it was their duty to comprehend God's handiwork. So not only has God changed lives through his word, He's changed history. And I could go on and on about education, economics, the arts. By the way, this is a freebie. One of the leading visual arts on planet Earth right now 
is a devout Quaker. His name is James Terrell. James Terrell. And James Terrell, if you haven't heard of it, you will be hearing of it, hopefully before he dies, because he's an elderly gentleman now. But he's doing what's called the Roden Crater outside of Flagstaff. He bought a volcano, and he's transforming it into an art piece. So when you walk into it, you're able to look up to the sky and see, see the changing patterns of light. He's a light artist. Why is he a light artist? Because when he was young, his grandmother said, James, follow the light. Follow Jesus Christ. James Terrell, follow the light. So James Terrell has made it his artistic career to follow the light. And he's a light artist. As a matter of fact, he's so popular that Kanye West, do you, anyone, has anyone heard of Kanye West? He's a rapper. Kanye West just gave him $10 million to try to help him finish that before he dies. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It's a testimony of the Lord could use Kanye West. It's like, wow, because, because James Terrell is following the light and he's the, one of the most respected living artists. But again, the list could go on. Let me just conclude with this. One writer put it this way. Modern atheistic critics can scoff at the beliefs of the Bible and the beliefs of professing Christians, but they do so while benefiting from living in the culture built on the beliefs they detest found in the Bible. The Bible has changed our history. So folks, can we trust the Bible? I think so. The evidence is there. The exactness through prophecy, it describing the real problems people face, the experiences of people and history, all of these demonstrate that the Bible is alive and active, helping change our attitudes, helping change history. It says, Peter states in 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, listen to this. Peter says, all flesh is as grass. And all the glory as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. The word of the Lord abides forever. Why? Because it comes with authority. It is alive. It's active. And it's changing our attitudes. It's altering history. I leave you with this poem by John Clifford, called The Anvil. Last eve, I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then, looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one said he, and then, with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, and the hammers are gone.
God's word abides forever because it does have authority. It's alive, it's active, and it's changing our attitudes. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in songs, but as they're coming up, I just want to introduce you guys to some books. It's so, it's so important that you defend your faith in today's day and age. So I'm just going to give you three resources that hopefully you could go. Apologetics, what defending your faith is called. It's called the defense of your faith is apologetics. And the first of these is the new book by John Warwick Montgomery. John Warwick was here several years ago. About two, 3,000 people came to hear him speak. And this is Always Be Ready. This is a great introduction into evidential apologetics. Sadly, the bookstore doesn't have it in yet. It's that new. They're ordering it. You want to make sure you get this. Secondly, based upon archaeology and um, giving you evidence for that, I recommend my friend, Joseph Holden. He's the president of one of the seminaries I went to. And it's Veritas Seminary. And he wrote this book along with probably the greatest living apologist, Norman Geisler. It's called The Popular Handbook of Archaeology and the Bible. It lists all those hundred of archaeology finds, and it tells you the textual support for the Bible. This book, folks, is a must. The Archaeology of the Bible. And then the final one just came out. It's called The Harvest Handbook of Apologetics. My friend Joseph Holden just uh, edited this, but our very own Steve Collins has a couple of articles in this. Norman Geisler, Ravi Zacharias, the list goes on and on, and they cover most of the stuff that I talked about. And what I think is so cool about this one, ladies, is you don't usually historically have heard of many women apologists. This book is chock full with women writers. Women are taking it upon themselves to start defending the Bible. Ladies, women's rights, come on. Started, supported by the Bible. And so women, so you want to pick this up. The Harvest House Book of Apologetics. So there's some books for you to get in your library to help you grow in your faith. God bless each of you. Thank you for your time. And let's stand and worship the Lord. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.